Well, I invite you to take your copies of God's Word this morning and turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. As you know, we had a um, fairly decisive change of plans with our schedule, with the the monthly fellowship and with the baptisms. And uh, originally the baptisms were going to be a little bit later out. And uh, my my goal, my intention was to preach a baptismal sermon, which I haven't done in a while, uh, on the doctrine of baptism and what it is and why it is so significant. However... um, as I was already planning to finish up the little mini-series on John 15 here that we've done, I, I looked at the text and I realized that really what our Lord Jesus is getting at in this text is one of the great implications and considerations as we think about uh, what it means to visibly enter in to a covenant relationship with Christ and His church and to own the Lord in an external and outward way. Uh, Because up until now, in John 15, as you know, the theme of this text has been the the loving and joyous communion between uh, between Christ and His people. That's what Jesus has been talking about. John 15, beginning in verse 1, all the way down through where we'll find ourselves today, Jesus has been talking about the nature of genuine salvation. And He's been talking about uh, the, the mark of true discipleship. Uh, and one of those marks is the subject of our text today. What does it mean to be a true disciple of Jesus? And we've looked at that from what it means in terms of our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. But this morning, Jesus answers that question by describing a true disciple's relationship with the world. And we'll find that Jesus has some very striking and interesting things to say about the way in which we as his people relate to the world. So let me read John 15, beginning in verse 18, and I'll read down through verse 25. John 15, beginning in verse 18. These are the words of God. If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. Uh, But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father." But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. In verses 18 through 25 of John 15, Jesus makes a dramatic shift from speaking about love to speaking about hate. Jesus spent a considerable amount of time discussing the nature of his relationship with his disciples, and their relationship with one another. But now he ends this section of this discourse with a very real description of the true disciples' relationship with the world. What we find in this text is that those who experience the love of Christ will likewise experience the hatred of the world. Jesus uses the word world six times in these two verses, in two verses here. And then he uses the plural pronouns they and them 12 times. What he's doing here is he's making a very clear division 
between those who are of the world and those who are of Christ or of himself. Now, a number of months ago in our midweek study on redemption accomplished and applied, we spent two Wednesdays doing a few word studies in the Gospel of John, and we looked at all of the different ways that that John himself uses the word cosmos, the word world. And I don't know if anybody got anything out of that, but I had a good time looking at, at that, that textual issue there. And what we find is that there's a variety of ways that John uses the word world. Well, in this context, in John 15, as Jesus is speaking, he is using the term world to refer to the mass of humanity that is separated from Christ. That is what he's talking about here when he talks about the world. He's talking about those who are separated from Jesus Christ. You must understand this morning that there are two and only two types of people that have ever existed. As the Puritan Thomas Watson said, all of humanity hangs upon the girdles of two men's breasts. And this morning you are either united to Christ You own Him as your Savior, you follow Him as your Lord, and He is your representative before God, or you are still of your father Adam. And the works of your father you do, the broken covenant of your father you are still in, and the sins of your father you follow after. You are either a true disciple of Christ, or you are of the world, but you're not both. You're not both. Well, this is a difficult concept for us to understand because we live in a day when the church often looks very much like the world. And this is no fault of the world as if they've become more godly. No, this is the fault of the church for becoming much more like the world. And oftentimes you you don't even really see uh, much of a distinction. And the lines become blurry and and. We have a difficulty really assessing ourselves. Are we walking and following after the Lord Jesus Christ or are we of the world? I like what Martin Luther said when he said, you can't help but that the birds will fly over your head. Just don't let them make a nest in your hair. Christian, you must remember that you are in the world, but you are not of the world. James 4 and verse 4 tells us, Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. It's very sharp, very blunt, very straightforward language. There is no middle ground. That's what I'm trying to say to you. You're either a friend of the world or you're the friend of Christ, but you're not both. It's very important that we speak of things like worldliness and friendship with the world. When we speak of these things, we must ground our conversation in the objective standards of Scripture, not the traditions of men. Godliness ought not be defined as the traditions of American churches in the 1950s. And worldliness ought not be defined as merely departing from those traditions, right? Right? Something deeper here. Godliness must be defined, this is shocking, but godliness must be defined with the very character of God himself. With the objective standard of who he has revealed himself to be in his word. And therefore worldliness is not a departure from the traditions of men or the customs of the church. Worldliness is a departure from the character of God. Did you know that you can be religious and still be of the world? Mm -hmm. Did you know that you can have a cross on your building or hanging around your neck or tattooed on your bicep and still be of the world? Mm -hmm. Did you know that you can come to church and still be of the world? Because being of the world is not defined merely by external behavior. Jesus defined friendship for us in this chapter, did he not? And he didn't define it merely as the way we relate to each other on an external level. But to be a friend is to have an intimate and and deep affection in your heart of hearts 
for whatever it is that you're friends with. So the Bible tells us, love not the world, nor the things in the world. It doesn't just say, don't dress like the world, or don't listen to the world's music, or don't uh, watch the world's movies. It says, don't love the world. And if you don't love the world, you will have no desire to look like them, and sound like them, and talk like them. But if you do have a desire to look like them, and sound like them, and talk like them, and think like them, and believe like them, it's, it's because there's a love for them hidden away in your heart. So Jesus, it would be so much easier if he would just give us this, this list of 10 external standards that if we just followed the, the, the rules on the wall, then we know that we're not worldly. But that's not what he does, is it? He forces us to, to look into the word of God as a, as a mirror that examines our souls and, and pulls at our heartstrings and makes us evaluate our affections. And the defining characteristic of the relationship between Christians and the world is one of hatred. By the way, let me say this. It's a mutual hatred. I need to be careful and I need to explain that, right? Remember we said that the word world is a reference to the mass of humanity as it is separated from Christ. And when I say that our relationship... Uh, with them is one of mutual hatred. I don't mean that we as Christians are to go about hating everyone who's not a Christian. The Bible says God so loved the world that gave His only begotten Son. We're not supposed to go out and hate individuals who don't believe, but we are to go out and hate the sinful domain in which they live. Notice that's different than love the sinner, hate the sin. That's not what I said. But it's to have this animosity, this otherness, because how could we go on living in love or living peaceable with the very things that Jesus died to save us from? But what Christ really focuses in on in these texts is the hatred of the world towards Christians, towards his followers. This is what marks their relationship. This has always been true, and it will forever be true. That's why they killed Jesus. They killed him because they hated him. The New Testament church has always existed in hostility with the world around it. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles were thrown in jail. In Acts chapter 5, they were thrown in jail again. In Acts chapter 6, the church ordained Stephen as a deacon, who's a man full of the Holy Ghost. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned. In Acts 8, a general persecution of the church broke out, led by a young man named Saul. In Acts chapter 12, the first apostle is murdered. James was killed by Herod. Also in Acts chapter 12, Peter was imprisoned and sentenced to execution. He was freed by an angel only to be crucified later in his life. In Acts chapter 9, Saul was converted, but he immediately began to face threats of persecution from the very Jews that killed Jesus. History reveals that all of the apostles, except for John, would be martyred. And John didn't have it so well himself. He was exiled to the Isle of Patmos and endured brutal forms of torture before he died, Nephesus. The Jews were the original persecutors of Christ's followers, but the Gentiles soon picked it up as well. For the first 300 years of church history, Christianity faced many waves of Roman persecution. Ah, but then in 313, you know, the Constantine was converted and Rome became a Christian nation, right? No, the persecutors just changed their names. And no longer was the persecution primarily led by the pagan state of Rome, but now the persecution was primarily led by the pagan church of Rome. Still today, many Christians around the world die daily for their faith in Christ. In fact, most reports would agree that there are more martyrs for the faith today than at any other time in the history of the world. The words of Jesus in verses 18 through 25 
are not those of heavenly blessing, but those of earthly turmoil. And it's very difficult for us in this Western American evangelical context to wrap our minds around what Jesus is saying here because we have never experienced persecution. We as Americans live in an unprecedented period of church history in which God has has graced us with this blessed reprieve, this this amount of liberty that has never been known by any uh, group of Christians ever in the history of the church. We are a, a complete anomaly to the reality that most of our brothers and sisters have experienced throughout the last 2,000 years. But just because things seem easier for this brief moment in history, do not think that the world has become any less hostile to true Christianity. Do not think that the spirit of the world has become any less antagonistic to the truth of the gospel. In fact, the reality that persecution seems so light in our day might just be an indictment against us. Perhaps if we were more faithful... Perhaps if we were more godly, perhaps if we were more unlike the world, we would receive more persecution from the world. Christ emphasizes this truth in this chapter so that his disciples would fortify their minds and remain faithful to him as they endure the world's hatred. Jesus, his evangelistic and discipleship methodology is remarkable. Because we are so eager to have converts and we're so eager to grow churches that uh, we almost uh, trip over ourselves begging people to accept Jesus. And if we hear someone that's thinking about Christianity, we want to talk them into it. It's almost as if sometimes that Jesus does the opposite. Someone comes to him and says, I want to follow you. And he says, well, you better count the cost first. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to follow you. Well, you know, if you're not prepared to lose your own life, you're not worthy to follow me. Well, I want to follow you. I want to, be, I want to be one of your disciples. Well, the world is going to hate you if you follow me. Because Jesus knew that he didn't have to sugarcoat the gospel. He didn't have to uh, talk people in with smooth and persuasive words. But he wanted them to understand the reality of what it meant to follow the king of holiness in a wicked world. And he He reminds us of these truths and he emphasizes this relationship of the world's hatred towards us. Number one, by reminding us that the world hates us. And secondly, by reminding us that the world hates us for his sake. And nothing should motivate us to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, more than the thought that we are called to suffer like our master and for our master. So I want to show you from this text five reasons why the world hates Christians. And in many ways, this is a a summary of what we've seen thus far in John 15. The very blessings of the gospel that we so love and so thank God for are the very reasons why we receive animosity from the world. Number one, the world hates us because of our standing in Christ. Because of our standing in Christ. Notice verse 18, Jesus begins and he says, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Notice that Jesus does not use the word if because there's any doubt or any uncertainty about the world's hatred for Christians. It will be so, and it must be so, so long as we remain Christ's and the world remains the world. The conditional element of this truth is if you are a true Christian. If the world hates you. Because the opposite is true as well. If the world doesn't hate you, then you have no reason to believe that you are a follower of Christ. And so I I ask this question, and I know that there's a subjective element to this, but what has your faith cost you? Loss of friendship? Alienation from family? Social repercussions? 
Loss of financial opportunities? Again, it would be wrong to put some sort of legalistic standard and say that uh, those who have lost the most are the most spiritual. But I am deeply concerned about the genuineness of a faith that costs nothing. If you can be a follower of Christ and keep running with the world the way you did before you supposedly started following Christ, there's a problem there. What can genuine followers of Christ expect but to be treated the same way as their Lord was treated? You read the ministry of Christ and you see over and over again people that turn away from Him, people that forsake Him, people that discontinue following after Him. Brothers and sisters, no one said that this was supposed to be easy. If you have this conception of Christianity that your life is is miserable and unhappy and full of depression and sadness and now you're going to follow Christ and it's just going to be rainbows and sunshines all the way to glory. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's not what our Lord has promised us. And, And this goes against our natural fleshly desire to be liked, which is my problem and your problem. We don't want to be a weirdo. We don't want to be an outcast. We don't want to be the black sheep. We don't want to lose our friends. We don't want to lose relationships with our family members. We don't want to lose our job. We don't want to lose our status in society. We want to be liked. We want people to think well of us. We want them to say good things about us. And Jesus says, if you're following me, Don't expect the world to treat you with the same reverence and respect that it did when you once belonged to them. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And then look at verse 20. He says, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Notice Jesus is not giving us Conditional predictions. He's just telling us the way it is. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. The disciples had already heard this saying uh, where, where Jesus says to them, the servant is not greater than his Lord. They, they've heard this three times from Christ's own lips. Once in John 13 and verse 16. Once in Matthew verse, uh, chapter 10 verse 24. Once in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40. In John 13, Jesus says this to encourage humility in us. But here in John 15, it is spoken to encourage endurance in the midst of hardship and persecution. There is perhaps no time in which we are more like Christ than when we are suffering for our faith in Him. As Christians... We are called to share in His sufferings. Are we to think that we can take up our cross and follow Him, yet avoid the pain of being crucified? No, brethren, so long as the church militant shall last, the words of the Apostle Paul will hold true. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, Yea, and all that desire that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And notice he says, he says, but if they keep my saying, they will keep yours also. Our word and his word are to be so intimately joined together that we ought not expect to be received unless Christ is received. So don't be surprised when an anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-truth establishment rejects you. They better reject you. Because if they don't reject you, your word and his word must not be the same thing. Oh, but if they receive Christ, if God gives them the gifts of faith and repentance and he opens their eyes to see the truth and to believe the truth and to live in the truth, they'll receive us as we proclaim the truth to them. So number one, the world hates us because of our standing in Christ. But secondly, the world hates us because we are separated from the world. Notice verse 19. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. 
But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. See, as Christians, we are not part of this world's system. We're no longer members of that ungodly, worldly establishment that we used to call home. The word cosmos denotes an organized and structured system. The opposite of cosmos, the Greek word that's opposite of cosmos, is the word chaos. Can you see the the antinomity between those two words, cosmos and chaos, right? So cosmetology is where we get our word cosmetology. And what is cosmetology? Well, it's when women try to make order out of chaos. It's what cosmetology is. It's a structured and organized system. And what Jesus is teaching us here in verse 19 is that the world is very faithful to itself. The world loves its own. And if this sinful, unregenerate world loves you, it is because it sees the world in you. Perhaps some of you have experienced this after your conversions. And you heard from your old friend who said something to you like this. You know... You sure have changed. I liked you better before you were a Bible thumper. I liked you better before you were going to church all the time and talking about Jesus all the time. I liked you better when you used to come out and party with us and get drunk with us and be foolish with us. I liked you better then. What happened to you? You're no fun anymore. What is that? That's the world loving its own. Now, the sad thing is that many times the world is better at loving its own than we are at loving our own. We as Christians ought to have a semblance and, a, and the same kind of affection one for another, even as the world has for itself, because we share one thing greatly in common, and that's that we all have been taken out of this worldly system. How did that happen, brothers and sisters? You didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what, Uh, I've decided that worldliness is not for me. I've decided that uh, I think I'm going to resign my membership with the world and I'm going to go find some Christians somewhere and I'm going to join up with them and I'm going to start following Jesus. I know that's how a lot of people, uh, sadly even a lot in churches, think that salvation works, but I assure you it doesn't work that way. As our our late brother Ward used to say, it's like some Christians uh, dress their sins up with wrapping paper and a bow and they show up to church on Sunday morning and they say, here I am, Lord, unwrap me. That's not how you came to not be of the world. Jesus tells you how you came to not be of the world. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Christ chose us out of the world. If we are not of the world any longer, we owe that to His special grace. Colossians 1 and verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us, love that, translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Amen. So, Brothers and sisters, it's very simple. There is no such thing as a worldly Christian. Can't be. It can't be. Because we've been plucked out of the world. We've been taken out of the world. And this is why the doctrine of separation is so important. And it's so important that we preach it as we find it in the Bible. And and that we don't let those who have abused the doctrine of separation to cause us to want to just neglect it altogether. Christ makes a difference in our lives, in our conduct, in our affections, in our desires, in our behavior, in our words, in our beliefs. When he saves us, there is no such thing as neutrality. You are either of Christ and loved by Christ, or you are of the world and loved by the world. The purpose of our separation is not so we can just be Baptist monks. The purpose of our separation is so that we have the liberty and the freedom to draw near to God. And those, those worldly passions and sins that kept us in bondage, 
They no longer have hold upon us. They no longer hinder our communion with our Creator. We know, brothers and sisters, that the gate is narrow, but we have often, far too often, forgotten that the way is narrow as well. And there are too many who think that they can go in at the narrow gate, but then live their whole lives on the broad way and be loved by the world. And Jesus tells us, and this is, this is something for all of us to consider, but brother and sister, especially as you now this afternoon will own Christ publicly and visibly through the waters of baptism and unite covenantally with him and his people, Notice that Jesus says that if you're living your life on that broad way and you're loved by the world, you never entered in at the narrow gate. I I plead with you, do not trust these celebrity preachers who are so loved by the world and preach a gospel that tells you you can be loved by the world. From the days of Noah till today, God's men have been hated by the world. And we revere the names like Whitfield and Calvin and Spurgeon and on and on in our day. But do you realize that in their day, those men were hated by the world? You read the diaries of Whitfield and you you read of him talking about preaching in the street, having the carcasses of dead animals thrown at him while he was preaching. You, you read of Spurgeon and, and the, the slander that was printed about him and the, the obstacles he faced because he stood on the Word of God and refused to compromise with the liberalism and the theological unorthodoxy that was creeping into London in those days. Now, yes, sure, we in the church revere these men today, but in their day, they were hated by the world. And guess what? The world doesn't know them by name, but the world still hates everything they believed and stood for. And so it will be with us. They hate us because we are separated from the world. Thirdly, they hate us because they suppress the truth about God. Verse 21. Notice. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Again, we see that Jesus inextricably links the reception of the Father with the reception of the Son. Jesus consistently makes this point all throughout His earthly ministry. John 5, 23, He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent Him. 1 John 2, 23, Whoso denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. He that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Implicit in our Lord's theology is a robust Trinitarianism. And Jesus is teaching that you cannot receive the Father without receiving the Son, and you cannot receive the Son without receiving the Father. Furthermore, when a sinner comes to God, they must come to Him as as He is revealed to us in the Scriptures, not as how we want Him to be. Notice in verse 21, Jesus tells us that, that... Persecution comes when sinners suppress the truth about who God is. Verse 21, But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. All of the perversity that we have in our land today, all of the animosity towards uh, our values and ethics as those who believe the Bible all comes from a result of sinners who do not know God. Paul tells us in Romans 1, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and that puts them on a downward spiral into moral depravity. Sadly, what has happened in our day is that they've fashioned one of the most sinister idols, and it is a false god called Jesus Christ but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a Jesus that has been fashioned and created after the likeness of sinful men. It is a Jesus that approves and accepts of our sins. It is a Jesus that has no demands upon our lives. It is a Jesus that soothes the guilty consciences of sinners and makes them feel comfortable on their way to hell. As one person put it, 
In the beginning, God made man in his own image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. And what, what, what do sinners do when they're confronted with the truth of, of God as he reveals himself in the scriptures? They reject that truth, and then they make up their own God. I love what John MacArthur said one time. I heard him say, when people tell me, oh, my God would never do that. My God would never send anyone to hell. MacArthur says, you're exactly right. He would never send anyone to hell because your God doesn't exist. You've made him up. And what you must understand is that a made-up Jesus is a Jesus that cannot save. This, this might be the Jesus that sinners rally behind in their persecution of those who love and serve the true Jesus. Right? Because if you declare what the Bible says about sin and righteousness and holiness and justice, it won't be long before someone tells you, you should be more like Jesus. You ever heard that one? And what they mean is that you should be more like the Jesus that they made up. Because that Jesus doesn't have a problem with their sin. That Jesus is loving. Oh, my Jesus is loving too. And it is because of his love that he hates my sin and died for my sin and died to save me from my sin. This truly is the world's greatest problem. They do not have a right and saving knowledge of God. And so they hate God's truth and they hate God's people and they hate anyone that proclaims what God has said. And we as his people are called to do just that. We're called to proclaim him to a world that hates him, trusting in his sovereign power to overcome the hostility of sinners and save a people who once sat in darkness of who he really is. Not everyone has a Damascus experience. You know what I'm talking about, the dramatic conversion of the Apostle Paul in Acts 9. Not everyone has that dramatic experience, but everyone is converted out of the same depravity. And when God saves us, he opens our eyes and he opens our minds to see him for who he is, to know him. Well, fourthly, we consider the reasons why the world hates the followers of Christ. Fourthly, because their sins are revealed. See, a knowledge of God entails a knowledge of his holiness and a knowledge of the holiness of God quickly shows us a knowledge of our unholiness. Notice in verse 22, Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Now you might just have a version that says they have no excuse for their sin. And that is an accurate uh, meaning of the text. But I want you to know that the, the word there literally is a cloak. Jesus is talking about an outer garment, an external garment that you would wear over your clothes to conceal what you were wearing. And so Jesus is painting this picture that unbelievers who sit in darkness, who don't have a knowledge of who God is, it's as if they have a cloak that covers all of their sins. They don't want people to see their sins for what they are. They don't want to see their sins for what they are. And Jesus says, my coming into the world took that cloak away and exposed the sins of the world. If you want to elevate the world's hostility towards Christians, all you have to do is declare the truth about sin. This is why they stone the prophets. This is why they killed John the Baptist. This is why they crucified Jesus. Because these men did not shy away from declaring the truth about sin. John 7 and verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hateth, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Talking about God in the public sphere won't get you into too much trouble. Celebrities do it all the time, don't they, when they win an award? <laughs> Athletes do it when they win a trophy. Politicians do it when they run for office. And you may even get away with mentioning the name of Jesus. Mr. Actor, would you like to say anything when you receive this award? 
oh yes, I want to thank God for this and I want to thank my Savior Jesus for this award. That doesn't really bother too many people. But the instant that you so dare as to say what God has said about the sins of this world, you will ignite the full-blown rage of those who love darkness. Jesus said that his coming in the world was a removal of their cloak. The world that laid in darkness for so long was forced to deal with the light of divine holiness when the Son of God came to this earth, lived a sinless life in the presence of sinners. And like roaches who scurry when the light shines in their darkness, so sinners do all they can to avoid the reality of Jesus Christ. And this rejection of Christ is truly the most heinous sin of all. The world has heard the words of Christ and they have seen the works of Christ and they are without excuse for rejecting Him. Well, fifthly, there is a final reason and that is this, because the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Because the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Notice verse 25. Jesus says, But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled, that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 35, 19 and Psalm 69 and verse 4. And what we find, the fifth and final cause for the world hating Christians is that there is no cause. The world's hatred for Christ and his people is senseless, but it does not come as a surprise. This is a prophesied and predicted hatred. This is why Jesus can guarantee that we too will be hated just as they hated him. This hatred is as senseless as it is certain. Jesus says that the world hates him and his people without a cause for no reason at all. Oh sure, they have their reasons, but their reasons are not the true reasons for their hatred. You have to fabricate reasons. Because how could you ever come up with a legitimate reason to hate a man who came to this earth and who lived in in man's flesh for 33 and a half years, who never sinned? who never wronged anyone, who never offended anyone, uh, who never uh, reproached anyone, who never trespassed anyone, but all he did was love. All he did was, was show kindness to those who deserved it the least. All he did was give of himself and give of his time and give of his efforts. All he did was pray and intercede for others and do good unto others and preach peace and good tidings unto others. And then in the greatest display of his selflessness, he goes to the cross and he gives his life as a free gift to all those who receive it by faith. How could the world hate such a man? They mask their hatred in a disguise of false virtue and false dignity, trying to make their hatred look respectable. Jesus says this hatred is just without cause. Brothers and sisters, our suffering will not be noble. I'm not trying to get prophetic here. I'm certainly not trying to preach doom and gloom. But if and when the day comes that the animosity of the world towards the people of God is cranked up, it will not be a noble suffering. When the world persecutes us, they will not admit their true reason for hating us. They will not confess to persecuting us for the sake of Christ. We will be persecuted as bigots and racists and extremists and homophobes and intolerant. And they will tell us that we do not know the way of Christ, which of course is love and tolerance and acceptance, so defined by them. And they will isolate us 
And they will paint us as lunatics simply for believing the Bible. And churches who remotely seek to obey the scriptures will be called cults. And voices that speak the truth of God will be despised and silenced. And apostate Christianity will be exalted. The idols of inclusivism and acceptance will be worshipped and everything will be tolerated except for the true gospel. I'm not preaching despair, nor am I preaching discouragement. I'm simply telling you the way that it has always been between the followers of Christ and the world. Did you know that one of the, one of the reasons, one of the charges that the Romans used to persecute Christians in the early church was the charge of cannibalism? Because they celebrated the Lord's Supper? Many others were charged with being insurrectionists, being rebels because they spoke of their citizenship in another country. We are not promised glory down here. We are not promised fame and recognition and respect down here. We lay up treasures in another kingdom. And we seek to live in this world as citizens of that kingdom, honoring our Lord And let me tell you this, if your life is pleasing to Christ, it doesn't matter who you displease. Oh, may God sanctify us and give us the power of the Holy Spirit to say, I don't care what the world thinks about me. I don't care if they think that I look weird or I I talk funny or I spend my time in a different kind of way. Let us be faithful to following after the Lord Jesus Christ, caring only about his approbation. This is part of what it means to abide in him. We are called and afforded the privilege of bearing his reproach and sharing in his sufferings. Well, in the midst of the world's hatred, there are three great encouragements that I want to leave you with. Number one, I want you to understand that the world's hatred of us is a testimony that we are genuine followers of Christ. The world's hatred of us is a testimony that we are genuine followers of Christ. While we should never look at the world's animosity to us as some sort of badge to be celebrated, it should give us cause to rejoice. When we are, when we search our hearts and examine ourselves, by the way, you're going to do that. You're going to always find pride and arrogance and you're going to always find taints of sin. But when you, when you are simply speaking the word of God and you receive the rejection of the world, that is a cause to rejoice. Jesus said it himself. It means we have the privilege. We have the privilege to suffer for him, to bear reproach for his name, to own him before men, to identify as His before men. Secondly, be encouraged by the promise that Christ will empower us to endure the afflictions we face for His sake. When Paul wrote the fourth chapter of Philippians, he was not at all thinking about the ability to shoot a basketball from the three-point line. When Paul says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content, he was talking about a state of persecution and affliction and reproach. And he says, I've been given the grace to be content with this lot in life because I'm suffering for the sake of my Lord. What a privilege, Paul said. And when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me, that's exactly what he was talking about. How did the martyrs of church history go singing to their death? How did the martyrs like Polycarp who were given an opportunity to recant, how were they empowered to say something like, 80 and 6 years have I served him? And I will not leave him now. You say, I don't know if I have the faith to die for Jesus like that. You don't. You don't but he'll give it to you when you need it. How did Paul, sitting in a Roman prison cell, knowing 
that his life would soon come to an end on the guillotine as his head was chopped off of his body. How did he endure? How did he keep going? How did he write some of, some of those encouraging letters? He wrote them from a jail cell. Because he said, as he was writing to Timothy, I'm not bothered by my fate, for I know whom I have believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Are you persuaded this morning that no matter what the world will say about you or what the world can, can do to you, hey, cheer up. The worst thing they can do is kill you. And you're already dead. Dead to the world and alive in Christ. Fear not those which are able to kill the body. But fear Him and serve Him and follow Him who has power over our lives in this age and in the age to come. And brothers and sisters, thirdly, be encouraged by this truth. Persecution is a light and momentary affliction. You say, do you really believe that? Well, I, I, I must because Paul said it. I don't understand how he could say it because the persecution he endured seemed pretty harsh to me. But yet as he was going through it, he says, this light and momentary affliction that will soon give way to an exceeding weight of glory. On the last day, all of the emperors of this world, the dictators of this world, the vagabonds of this world that have persecuted the people of God they will be put down. They will be conquered. They will be forever and eternally vanquished. Oh, but all the martyrs, all those who suffered for Christ, all those who bore with endurance the reproach of their Lord will be vindicated on that day. We know that day's coming because we read in Revelation and we hear the martyr saying, How long, O oh Lord? It's coming, brothers and sisters. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. Amen. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One look on His dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your abundant goodness to us today. And Lord, this is a hard truth that we know that we can expect nothing from the world but hatred. But yet we trust and rely in your promise to be with us always, to never leave us, to never forsake us, but to always uphold us, to undergird us, to defend us, and Lord, one day to vindicate us. Hasten the day until our faith shall be sight and we shall dwell with you for all eternity. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.